Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Over the BBC in World War II, Churchill described the Soviet Union as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Today, Churchill would probably substitute China as that big question mark. China seems to march to its own drummer. Its government and economic policies often unpredictable and increasingly at odds with American interests, and it bothers other countries. Observe the protests generated by the Beijing Olympic torch tour. China's importance to our financial system and consumer goods market cannot be overstated. It's our biggest creditor, our main source of many consumer goods, a serious and growing competitor for oil and other energy sources. Why is all of this happening? And what actions, if any, should the U.S. take? To help us understand and to discuss we have one of the country's outstanding China scholars. He is Dr. Minxin Pei, director of the China program of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. His research focuses on economic reform and governance in China and on U.S.-China relations. His latest book is published in 2007, China's Trapped Transition, The Limits of Developmental Autocracy. He has appeared on all major network and cable news. His research has been published in Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, The National Interest, Modern China, China Quarterly, Journal of Democracy, and many edited books. His op-eds have appeared in the Financial Times, New York Times, Washington Post, Christian Science Monitor, and other major newspapers. He received his undergraduate degree from Shanghai University, his master's and doctorate from Harvard. Please help me welcome to our International Perspective Series, Dr. Minchin Pei. Uh, thank you very much, Mel. And I also want to thank the World Affairs Council for giving me the honor to uh, address this very distinguished group today. Uh, I'm from Washington, so I cannot resist cannot help uh, resisting, uh, 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 I cannot resist, uh, resist uh, telling a few jokes about Washington. Uh, first of all, uh, people in Washington uh, think that they have think tanks where people uh, do nothing but think about uh, global issues. But given my experience there, which is actually almost a decade, I found that people there do more talking than thinking. So I'm a typical talking head, not a thinker. Uh, second, I've also noticed in my uh, decade in Washington is that people actually do not prepare for their speeches very carefully. I've once noticed somebody who starts scribbling uh, down furiously five minutes before he uh, was supposed to uh, uh, start his speech. I can assure you I did I'm not that kind. I, uh, uh, I do have uh, well-prepared uh, th uh, notes uh, because I 
take this uh, uh, talk very seriously. I think China is a huge topic, and for the future of U.S. prosperity, security, uh, and of course for China's own prosperity and uh, uh, security, uh, a good policy toward China and a good policy for China toward the U.S. are <coughs> crucially important. Uh, I woke up at 3.30 your time today in order to catch the first flight out of Washington Dallas, on the Washington uh, National, but be sure that I will be coherent. I'm a, <laughs> I've done a lot of uh, uh, public speaking, uh, uh, and uh, that's because China has become really a very important issue. When I started in Washington a, a decade ago, I didn't travel much because there was not much demand for my instant analysis. But over the last three years, I, I could uh, feel a real difference because all I need to do is to look at my calendar today. The, the number of days I'm, I'm away from home uh, rose from 90 to 135 uh, last year. So it shows that the interest in China is great. And that's good for me personally because I have permanent gainful employment. <laughs> so uh, anytime China is in the news, either good or bad, I'm okay. <laughs> but today we're uh, going to talk about China's record as a responsible power. Because if we look at uh, history, the rise of a great power has not been a pleasant experience. It has always been accompanied by conflict, and by persistent tensions. Will China's rise be different this time? So before we uh, look into the future, let's look at what China has done in the last 30 years. I, left, I was born in China, I left in 1984. When I left, China was really a country beginning to wake up from three decades of self-imposed isolation. Uh, how many of you have been to China? And the China you saw on your last trip did not exist when I left China 24 years ago. Shanghai today is a forest of skyscrapers. When I left, in all of Shanghai, there were a grand total of two buildings taller than 20 stories. <laughs> and one of them was built uh, in the 1920s. Uh, but Enormous progress has happened since then. If you look at the integration of China into the global economy, it has been a resounding success. <coughs> China was a negligible trading power in 1978. That's 30 years ago. China began its economic reform uh, 30 years ago. I think according to uh, some statistics, China was ranked number 21 or 23 uh, in terms of its trade uh, with the rest of the world. Today, China is number three, behind the US, Germany. And so think of China's economic integration in those terms. And then uh, 30 years ago, China's per capita income was very low, roughly around $150. Today is about $3,000 per capita income. Of course, if the dollar keeps falling, yeah. then the Chinese <laughs> per capita income will keep rising. Uh, so that's 20 times 
in 30 years. In world history, no economy has accomplished that kind of progress, including the Japanese economy, which used to be a miracle. Um, and then uh, China's uh, uh, economic influence across a whole range of sectors. Look at finance. China is today a net exporter of capital, a poor country. I mean, think about per capita income. China is really so-called low-middle-level uh, uh, sort of, uh, low country, income country. Uh, it holds $1.6 trillion in foreign exchange reserve and uh, has been financing American budget deficits. Just 30 years ago, if you tell people that 30 years from now China will do this and that, and people, of course, will laugh at you. And then the next thing they do is to commit you. <laughs> but that's really uh, sort of um, uh, the degree of change China has brought. And uh, uh, China, yes? Oh, I'm sorry. OK. Uh, I hope this is better. Yeah, sorry about this. Yeah. Uh, uh, then, uh, uh, if you look at uh, areas after areas, China today is the world's largest producer of steel. China, of course, is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases as well. Uh, China now moves markets, can move oil market, can move grain market, can move commodities market, can move all kinds of uh, markets. So it is indeed China has become the world's new great power. And that, I think, is something the world has welcomed and continues to welcome. But China's, despite enormous progress in its economic development and its relations with the rest of the world, for the last 30 years, other than economic growth that has taken place in China, China's overall relationship with the rest of the world has improved. 30 years ago, China was the world's greatest rogue state. It was exporting revolution. It was engaged in nuclear engaged in nuclear proliferation. It did very little trade with the rest of the world. And it called for the destruction of capitalism. Today, the Chinese Communist Party may still be called communist. But if you look at its policies, and if you meet its officials, you'll find that you're meeting Republicans not communists. <laughs> In other words, China politically has also become part of the capitalist West, even though its, re its leaders do not want to publicly admit that point. Uh, Security-wise, again, China used to be a very unpredictable, uncooperative power. It uh, fought Vietnam, it fought the Soviet Union, it fought India. Uh, in other words, it was not a very peaceful power. But in the last 30 years, China's record on being a peaceful power was actually pretty good compared with its history be uh, before it began its economic reform. So I think by and large, we would say the last 30 years, for China and for the rest of the world were an unambiguous success story. But why is the title of this talk called China's Mixed Record? 
I think we will start by the world's reception to <coughs> China's rise. China would not have accomplished, could not have accomplished its enormous success without the rest of the world, especially the West, being a productive partner in this story. Because the West opened its arms to China when China was ready to get out of its self-imposed isolation. If you recall, 30 years ago, Mr. Deng Xiaoping came to this part of the country, and he uh, really charmed the Americans, especially the Texans, by wearing this um, gigantic Texan cowboy hat under which he disappeared. Uh, but remember, that was his the first Western country he visited after he regained the power. And that was the only Western country he visited. He was very clear about where he wanted to take China. He wanted China to be like the US. He wanted China to be an economically modern power. And I think he accomplished that goal. But today, the rest of the world is beginning to reflect upon its own success. As Oscar Wilde once famously said, when God wants to punish us, he answers our prayers. So I think 30 years ago, we all prayed that China would come out of its poverty, isolation, and become successful. And now it is becoming perhaps a little bit too successful for our own good. So I, I will characterize the West's response to China's rise in three sentences. The first one is hoping for the best. We hope that China will continue to be responsible to, uh, to obey the rules of the international order to be constructive, even though it is now far more powerful than it used to be. The second one is that we are worried all the time because we're not so sure whether our prayers will be answered. And lastly, that we are not really sure about the future. That is, China's future, domestically speaking, is uncertain. Even though China has scored three decades of unsurpassed economic development, I would say only those who are accustomed to playing one-way bets will say China's economic development will continue forever and ever. For those of us who actually follow developments in China, we are not, we are not that certain because there are many, many difficulties within China. And I'm not going to go into that uh, for the moment. Uh, uh, then China's relationship with the rest of the world. Again, we do not know. Looking at Chinese recent behavior, we're not so sure that China will continue to be as responsible as we want it to be. But I think on the whole, the West has come to the following consensus about China. The West here really means the US, EU, and Japan. First, I think all of us now recognize China has become a great power. That is the political reality. That means that our relationship with China, our policy, our foreign policy has to be based on that political reality. And because of that political reality, 
all the Western powers have decided that for the moment, at least, the best option is continuous engagement with China on politics, on economics, and on security. Because we would rather to have a new great power of China be a constructive force rather than a disruptive force. So I think that's another, that's a policy I think even in the US, despite very bitter partisan uh, differences, both uh, the Democrats and the Republicans agree on. And then the second part of the consensus is that despite the occasional problems we've had with China, the West also agrees and by and large, they have benefited from China's emergence as a great power. You look at uh, econom uh, economic trade, you look at international security, international cooperation, China by and large has been a force for the good for the West. And, but that does not mean that the West has no problems with China. So despite these sort of two uh, pieces of consensus regarding China, on a day-to-day -day level, the US and the rest of the world, uh, and uh, the West, encounter very serious problems with China in the following fields. First of all, in the economic uh, uh, area, uh, China has become now a huge trading power with the rest of the world. And China's economic growth, uh, to a large extent, depends on its trade with the rest of the world, because about two-thirds of the Chinese economy is derived from its foreign trade. For the US, it's 35%. So China is a far more open economy than the US economy. But in this area, we tend to believe that trade is a win-win proposition. It does not happen, because first of all, uh, there are huge trade imbalances that are partly uh, caused by macroeconomic policies. If a country saves too little, it tends to consume more and then imports more. That means it has a trade deficit. But if a country saves too much, then it tends to produce too much and then runs a trade surplus. I mean, China today is a country that consumes too little, invests too much, and exports too much. Very similar to Japan in the late 1980s. But the problem is that one country's surplus becomes another country's deficit. And politically, that causes huge problems because we tend to link trade deficits with the loss of jobs, even though it's a very complicated issue. And I do, want, do not want to destroy uh, this uh, gathering by giving you an uh, amateurish lecture on the benefits of free trade. Uh, but China also has other problems, uh, other than trade imbalances, because China today uh, runs a huge trade surplus with everybody, with Japan. If you can run a trade surplus with Japan, you are, you are really something. But China has attained the impossible. With EU, the trade sur uh, uh, surplus with EU grows by $20 million and now, oh growing, okay. So that's, uh, uh, actually China will run a bigger trade surplus with EU than with the US. 
But in other areas, China does not appear to be obeying rules of international trade uh, in terms of uh, quality control. We are not so sure about some aspects of China's quality control, especially the recent scandals or <coughs> accidents involving pharmaceutical products uh, and toys and so on. Uh, I think most more uh, more worrisome is China's practice in the protection of international uh, intellectual property rights because China is a so-called late developing country and late developing countries want to take advantage of the knowledge of the intellectual property created by more advanced countries so you can get holds of get hold of these technologies for nothing or at very low cost and that of course conflicts with the interests of China's more advanced trading partners, the US and EU. And that has become very difficult uh, for the relationship. And finally, China has a very large state-owned sector that it wants to protect. If you go to China, you bank with Chinese-owned, Chinese government-owned banks. All the energy companies are owned by the government. All the telecom service companies are owned by the government, <laughs> airlines, rail. So a third of the Chinese economic uh, activities are produced by government-owned firms. And the Chinese government wants to protect these firms. And as a result, it keeps foreign competition out, which means that it does not allow foreign companies to get into these very profitable areas to offer their products and services. And that becomes a very difficult issue for the U.S. and EU because in the U.S. and the EU, the markets are far more open than the markets in China. <coughs> and you want to do free trade, but also you want to have fair access. So these issues in economic area have now become very, very salient for both for, for China and for the EU and the U.S. And then on the political front, uh, we're all aware of the recent turmoil surrounding the Olympics, Tibet. That's because human rights is an issue China's trading partners deeply care about. It's often very difficult to explain to uh, Chinese capitalist communists <laughs> why people are interested in things other than profits. I think they've read their learning too well. They believe that all capitalists believe in is profit. That's not the case, uh, because American political system and European political systems are democracies. People care about profits, but they also care about political values. And when you look at the area of political progress, that's where China has lagged behind, because China for the past 30 years has not allowed its political system to progress as fast as its economic system. So as a result, China today maintains a one-party state, which does not provide this, the acceptable level of protection for human rights as we want China to be. So today, China is in a very strange situation. Economically, it's growing closer and closer with 
the democratic world, but politically it stays apart because of the differences in their political systems. And China is this odd man out. And of course, China now has good company. Russia wants to join. <laughs> uh, so politically, there is this gap. And constantly, politics gets in the way. Because in Washington, when you talk about economic issues with China, if you poke a little bit beneath the surface, you find politics. When you debate a China policy on trade, you always say, we are dealing with a bunch of people who imprison priests, who ban religion, who do not allow a freedom of speech. In other words, they are a bunch of dictators. Why should we do business with them? So that kind of political rhetoric actually does get in the way of day-to-day -day, uh, business with China. And even strategically, China has become a so-called status quo power, which means that China really does not want to challenge the US-dominated international security system. But China is very uncomfortable with the idea that the US supremacy uh, is such a decisive factor in its policy. So over the last 20 years, not uh, 30 years, uh, since the early 1990s, China began a very systematic program to upgrade its military capabilities. And for the US, that's a very worrisome sign because in Washington, people tend to believe Uncle Sam is the world's car, is the world's policeman, and we will do nothing but good deeds. Why should you worry about your own security? So what China is doing is showing to the US that China really has no confidence in this American-led international security order. And that, of course, creates uh, distrust between China and the US. Uh, and then finally, so China's rapid economic development is very good for China. But we all know that China now has become the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases. And China's, the demand from China is driving up oil prices, food prices, you name it. Uh, so how is China handling its impact on the rest of the world? Because it's a, it's a real issue. We cannot blame China. How can I, how can we consuming so much energy, eating so well, uh, ask a country which has just said goodbye to its days of really grinding poverty that it has to consume less, it has to use less energy. It's tough. But I think uh, no matter how you look at this issue, uh, it would be good if China is more sensitive to the globe, uh, to the concerns of the rest of the world on this, and then take some policies. So because of these frictions, because of these underlying differences, especially the political difference, because democracies really do not trust other political systems, <laughs> even though we do business with them. I, in Washington, you would, uh, uh, next time if you watch television, uh, 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 if you see news reports of President Bush meeting leaders from other countries, watch the body language. 
when he meets with people from democratic countries, he's actually very, uh, his body language is not tense at all. He's very easygoing. But when he meets with president, uh, the president of China, President Putin, he actually is very tense. It's not like the usual Bush. Uh, because that's, that says something, it's, it's, in, it's instinctive because he understands this. And also, uh, look at, uh, the, the, this is a little assignment after this wonderful lunch. Check when the US Congress invited a leader from a dictatorship to address a joint session of Congress. <laughs> no, no, it's different because it really shows that we establish, maintain real trust only with the political likes of ourselves. And that's a fact. And as long as China and Russia uh, maintain a different political system, which does not share our values, which does not have the same political incentives, and which does not appear to be legitimate to us, then we will have problems with them on other issues as well. So, uh, so what is the world's policy toward China, strategy toward China? I would say hedging, because as I said, hope for the best, uh, worried all the time, unsure about the future, what do you do? And so we, uh, the US uh, uh, and to a much less extent Europe really have a two-handed policy, <coughs> engagement but also an insurance policy. Because we want China, we want to provide incentives for China to continue to be a responsible, constructive, power, but we also have policies in place to deal with China if China does not behave responsibly. That's where the U.S. Uh, always, uh, has intensified its relationship with India, which is a natural ally for the U.S. It's a de democracy, it's a rising power, it's, uh, a Chinese, uh, it's a neighbor of China. That's why the U.S has maintained very close ties with the traditional allies in Asia, Japan and Australia, and South Korea, because the U.S. wants to show China that it should not count on the U.S. leaving Asia uh, without, uh, le uh, ceding Asia to China's influence. Uh, why is China's record so mixed? Uh, I would say that uh, so uh, because I, uh, this uh, uh, strategy, uh, I think, uh, has the support of uh, the policymakers in the U.S. and Europe, and will continue. So let me now explain why China has this very mixed record in being a uh, uh, responsible world power. I think by and large, it is far more responsible today than it was 30 years ago. And it can actually, uh, when pushed, do the right thing. The first of all, I think, China today has a very pragmatic government. It understands where its interests are. It understands, for instance, that its relationship to the West is the key to survival of the Chinese Communist Party. 
the Chinese Communist Party never had it so good. If you look at, if you go to Beijing and meet government officials, they ride to the meeting, to the banquet in the Mercedes-Benz. 30 years ago, they were in the Mercedes-Benz. They live in air-conditioned uh, the, the, uh, apartments, and they, they just, their kids are all in uh, very well-paid jobs. They have travel, they travel frequently abroad. So in other words, all this is made possible by a good cooperative relationship with the West. They want to keep it that way. So that's very pragmatic. That's why they do their best to fit in. That's, uh, so when you look at uh, all these frictions between China and the rest of the world, and in the negotiations, their instinct is always to find real solutions and say, we have a uh, trade imbalance problem. So what can we do? Maybe we'll buy Boeing aircraft. Maybe we'll do this, maybe. So they have, in other words, they, they look for solutions. And that pragmatic aspect has kept the relationship between China and the West relatively stable. But now the less positive aspect. It's also, it's pragmatic, but it's also paranoid. When you think about China or think about any other country, you have to imagine a schizophrenic collective psychology <laughs> because people there or decision makers can entertain conflicting thoughts at the same time, driven by very contradictory impulses and somehow they remain sane. So when they are pragmatic, they're also paranoid. They're paranoid for several reasons. A, China's own recent history with the West. It was not a very pretty one. Talk about the Opium War, 19, um, 1840. Talk about Japanese invasion. Talk about its experience with the Soviet Union because it suffered in its recent contact with the rest of the world. So it was very suspicious. And second, it was also informed by lessons of history, the so-called how rising powers are dealt with by existing powers. Because it read the history of Germany, Japan, and the Soviet Union, and it concluded this uh, insight, that is, no matter what the rising power does, the existing superpower is always going to find fault with it. <laughs> so that means they are very, very suspicious about the motives of the rest of the capitalist world. But most importantly, they are also aware of the political, fundamental political difference. They believe that the democratic West always has this agenda of subverting the communist political system. To a certain extent, I think they're right, <laughs> because we really want to change China. We want to change other countries uh, and mold them into our own image. That's why we're in Iraq, supposedly. So uh, that's why, while they are dealing with the West economically, 
they are also trying to prevent West from influencing Chinese politics internally. That's why they're very careful about letting Western NGOs into China. They're very careful about allowing Western foundations to work in China, and that's why they're very, very strict about controlling the access uh, to uh, the Chinese society by Western reporters. And finally, I would say that its mixed record uh, is caused by China's own lack of understanding of the democratic process. That's not because uh, Chinese diplomats, Chinese officials are dumb. They are very smart people. Uh, but not having a democratic political system at home, they really do not know how messy democracy can become, how its process works, especially in terms of dealing with uh, foreign countries. So when they look at, when they read, for example, uh, the protest against China over Tibet, over the Olympics, they tend to have a very conspiracy-minded perspective. They, rather than looking at this as a very healthy, predictable, instinctive response, uh, reaction or phenomena in a democracy. Because we know in a democracy, you have to allow all kinds of people to speak. And they do all kinds of uh, interesting or sometimes crazy things. But that's part of democracy, no big deal. But they do not read the reaction by the democratic process the same way. And so what will, how will China uh, successfully or effectively reassure the rest of the world? Because we're looking forward. If you look at the past few years, it's a sort of unbalanced success story. But we also know a lot of obstacles remain. China's own economic policy, China's political system, and China's constant suspicion about the motives of the West, and China's inability to fit in with the democracy-dominated Western political order. How, how can China overcome this? I think the easiest way would say, well, if China only becomes a democracy, that will solve everything. But we all know that this is like only if everybody becomes a democracy. Well, remember what Oscar Wilde had warned us. I think we'll have problems of a different kind. Uh, I think that will happen in due order, but not going to happen in the next 10, 15 years. So we better be realistic about. The other way to change China is to change our own behavior. That is, but that's difficult because we know that our demo democratic process will always react in certain ways. We also have our values. That's why I think the only way for China to change is by a combined process of internal evolution. I trust that people in China will eventually change in a way very similar to what we are toward a more open society. But I also believe that for the West to be effective in China, it has to be more critical. It cannot live by this myth that the Chinese will change only if you show them respect. I think you show them respect, but also you want to 
put some kind of pressure on them to change. Otherwise, I think we will, we will have to live in this constant state of frustration. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Now, uh, for newcomers to the series, here's how we work the question. We take qu three questions at a time, and the speaker will answer them. And our questions, we want to give direct questions, no commentary, just, just a straight questions. So we'll entertain three questions. There? I'd like you to comment on, the, uh, on uh, China uh, uh, opposing the U.S. and the West on what we're trying to accomplish in Iran and in Sudan with the genocide, and, you know, and uh, they seem to be uh, uh, in opposition to us. What do we need to do to bring them uh, uh, around on this? Second question. Right here. I'm wondering if he feels that China has a master plan, and it, is it discernible? Okay. <laughs> Third question. Uh, Marvin? You've spoken of the political and the economic actions with China. And I'm wondering, can they be separated? If there are, and you mentioned the intellectual thievery, as well as other things that, uh, with the poor quality of pharmaceuticals, how much effect can our economic investment people have on China policy without involving the, the friction of politics in Washington? Uh, first, the easy question, whether China has a master plan, I don't think so. I think <laughs> if it has a master plan, it's what I call the survival of the Communist Party. I mean, that's all it cares about. I mean, if you want to understand Chinese policy behavior, uh, then go, uh, uh, look at everything from that angle, and you will get all the answers. Because it's really a, a group of people who have new problems every day. Just think about feeding 1.3 billion people, housing them, providing jobs. It's, I think we ought to give the Chinese Communist Party a Nobel Peace Prize for keeping them alive. Maybe that's a, a quarter of humanity. I mean, this is our cost. Uh, not serious comment, but uh, about Sudan and uh, 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 Iran, that's actually where you have the convergence of the political economic tensions between China and the West, where I mean, China's uh, economic development is driven by an insatiable appetite for resources. Iran, Sudan all have oil. And that means China has to be there. And China's uh, view of the world economic order is not exactly market-based, because it views that these energy markets are rigged anyway. So if it does not get in there, it will be uh, hell. It, it will be at the mercy of the global uh, global oil giants like ExxonMobil. And then, strategically it really does not trust that the U.S. will always do the right thing. So it was uh, Iran uh, being a little troublemaker does not hurt China at all. Of course, if Iran uh, becomes too much of a troublemaker, that it will hurt China. 
And in terms of intellectual property and domestic politics, I think with developing countries such as China and India, you're always going to have intellectual property rights problems. Japan, the same, same way. The, the Taiwan, South Korea, same way. But I think here is that when you have a non-democratic system, which typically does not have a strong legal system, then you compound the problem. And that's where I think uh, dealing with China is a little bit more difficult than dealing with Japan. Uh, they've asked now when you uh, do your question, please rise because they want to ring the microphone over to you because we're recording this. Okay, yeah, uh, first question. Okay, real, real quick now, real quick. Number two, uh, I have two specific uh, questions. Number one, you alluded that the export is 75% of the industrial capacity. Import-export. Yes, import-export. On the other hand, China has a million three hundred people. Eventually, the domestic market should develop to offset the area. Number two, uh, historically, can a communistic regime and a capitalistic uh, system work together? In the end, one of them has to, has to predominate, because in the lot, historically, this has never functioned before. Thank you. Uh, Question right here. Question over here. Microphone. Um, you spoke of the three sentences about how the rest of the world views China. How do Chinese citizens view China? Do they view a need for reform, or do they want to keep the status quo? Very good. Good question. Uh, another question. Stand up. Would you please comment on? Uh, China's economic invasion of Africa and its support of the uh, some of the uh, tyrannical governments, including Mugabe. Uh, China's role in Africa has been very controversial uh, because that's, again, it's an example of this, what I call mixed record. Uh, it's driven by mainly economic concerns because China views Africa as a source of raw materials, energy, and uh, minerals. Uh, and that, of course, and it wants to go in on its own, rather than doing this through a market-based system, say, buying the stuff on open markets. And that conflicts with our values. And then it also conflicts with our own values of democracy, human rights, because China deals with uh, dictatorships, Sudan, Mugabe, and so forth. Uh, but on this issue, China is beginning to pay attention <clears throat> because, as I said, critical engagement with China is a workable strategy. China may be driven by economic interests and to a less extent strategic concerns. But at the same time, China wants to be a so-called respected international power, responsible international power as well. So if you put enough pressure on China, China will at least, I think, adjust its tactics. Whether China will fundamentally change its behavior in Africa, I really do not know. But based on what China is doing, I think probably Chinese leaders themselves will understand very soon that their strategy is not going to work because they are wasting a lot of money. They are putting a lot of capital at risk. And I think for Western donors, 
with experience in Africa, you know that it's a very volatile part of the world. You cannot really count on some of the leaders, and least of all, the tyrannical regimes in Africa. What the Chinese think about themselves, I think uh, I was in China two weeks ago. I think the country is seized by this capitalistic mania, because it sees the, the population at large believes that China's moment has arrived. And we have to seize this moment, otherwise we're going to miss another uh, strategic, historic opportunity. So the focus is really on economic development. But at the same time, they also want a better government as well. They not necessarily want a democratic government. Because this fear of chaos, this mindset, they equate. The government has done a terrific propaganda job. that has educated Chinese people that democracy equals chaos. I mean, they, somehow that mathematic formula has stuck. Uh, but Chinese the Chinese public also believes that even without democracy, they can get better government. So we have a population in China that is more demanding, that wants better services. And I think that's good, because we want to be realistic. And then, uh, uh, what's the third question I forgot? Uh, oh, yes, yes, yes uh, domestic. But even though foreign trade accounts for two-thirds of the Chinese uh, 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 amount of two-thirds of China's GDP, uh, China still has a huge domestic market because China is in, in the middle of the world's most, uh, uh, the world's unprecedented urbanization. For about 30 years uh, uh, after China, uh, uh, Communist China was uh, established, China suppressed, its government suppressed urbanization, kept the people on the farms. So there was this delayed urbanization. Now, every year, about the five to six million people move into the cities. So there's this huge domestic drive. So foreign trade is important, but China is not completely depend, dependent on foreign trade. Second, capitalism and communism. First, I want to challenge you to find a real communist in China. I think the real <laughs> context is not between capitalism and communism. Communism is, is fini. It's really about democracy and authoritarianism. Because these are very two different systems. Somehow, leaders in China believe that it does not matter that much. I think they are wrong, because we, uh, we are very, like people in the West, are very convinced that democracy plus capitalism represents the future of the world. And if you have a different political system, then you say, well, if that's the future, what happens to, <laughs> to our system? Does that mean that we're on the wrong side of history? Whether that will be successful or not, I think uh, you can't blend capitalism with autocracy, but you end up with crony capitalism. And Crony capitalism is not really a very nice society for us to live in. But if you really want a healthy, a just society, then it has to be capitalism plus liberal democracy. Okay, now we have the final three questions um, right here. Wait till she brings the microphone to you. Aren't we a, a little naive to expect the Chinese to have a more sophisticated 
kind of a political system uh, when you consider that the uh, Cultural Revolution only ended 30 years ago? Next question. Uh, right there. Oh, sorry. Uh, to what extent is there support within the Chinese Communist Party for political reform such as local elections? is a major problem in China, and uh, do you see any uh, uh, remedy that the Chinese can take to uh, deal with polluted water, polluted air, and other problems before it uh, it breaks down the system? Well, it's a, it's a great question about our expectations. Is that 30 years ago, Chinese were killing each other. I mean, uh, think about the Cultural Revolution. Uh, 100 million people suffered. Uh, I lived through this and I could tell you horrible stories about this. Uh, and whether it would be realistic to expect China to have a more balanced, I guess, more open political system today, I would say let's look at sort of a flip around and let, let's look at the Chinese economy, Chinese society. If you look at the Chinese society, Chinese economy 30 years ago, they could produce nothing. They, were, they had trouble feeding their own people, and today they are lending money to the world's richest nation. <laughs> so I think if we could expect that much economic progress, it would not be too much to ask for a little bit more kindness, openness on the political side. <laughs> That's why I, I would say if you look at, and of course Chinese people are fully capable of it. If you look at Chinese society in the 1980s, it was poorer, but I, think, I would say politically it was more open. They actually had very vigorous debate about the future of China, about democracy. And that brings us to what the leaders think about democracy in China. They were frightened by one experience, one historic event. That is the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they attributed that collapse <coughs> to political reform, to democracy. They believed sincerely that Gorbachev made a huge mistake. Of course, I think many people in the U.S. share that view. Uh, and their conclusion was that if you play with fire, democracy being fire, you're going to get burned. And if so the lesson is not to play with fire. That's why I think the uh, leaders in China really do not think of political reform in a very serious way. Uh, even local election, that's really very cosmetic, has not made a real impact on how power is exercised. And pollution, that's really a very worrisome issue for China because if you identify two or three things that can stop the Chinese economic growth dead in tracks, pollution is one of them. For several reasons, China's economic growth model is very, very polluting because it's resource inten intensive, it's very lax environmental regulations. And second, China is a country that lacks drinkable water. It's, it's short of water and most of its river systems, lakes, underground aquifers have been polluted. So we don't know, I mean, you can run out of oil and then buy oil on the open market, but once if you really do not have drinkable water, then what do you do? And to deal with the pollution problem requires really very strong government enforcement. 
But today you have two conflicting objectives. One is that the government understands rapid economic growth, job creation, is the secret to its success. But if you want to enforce environmental regulations, then you will slow down economic growth a little bit. I think that's a price worth paying. But there's political risks. And this leadership probably is too risk averse to sort of to be more favorable to a policy that protects the environment. Thank you, Dr. Pei. This <laughs> For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.